1: Especially specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than luxe Mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today.
2: Welcome to the ID10T Podcast number 1105. Head on over to the ID10T shop. Uh, we've got a bunch of stuff there. Stocking stuffer things. The Daryl Dixon candle. S- sweaters t-shirts vintage items fun stuff uh head on over there now id10t.com and while we're talking about id10t.com let's talk about the id10t community cork board events at id10t.com like uh gregory who writes i'd like to say about my niece's business she started pause and reflect that's p-a-w-s and reflect is a small 100 percent soy based candle and homemade craft company in connecticut there are 41 plus scents that come in three size jars, uh, three sizes of jars, tea lights, wax melts. In addition, there are shea butter and goat milk soaps. She donates a portion of the proceeds to different animal rescue, shelter, pounder, animal-based organization uh, each month. She personally has rescued three dogs and one foster dog. Typically, Pause and Reflect has been sold uh, at open crafts in our area or by mail order, but due to the recent relapse back to Phase 2, these fairs have closed down. If anyone would like to check out her creations, please check out their Facebook page, Pause and Reflect, or the webpage, uh, PAWSPauseAndReflectCT.com. I imagine the CT is for Connecticut, because uh, I know my state abbreviations. Uh, All right. Hey, thank you for sharing, Gregory. And then uh, excellent work. Really excellent work on making these uh, these cool candles and donating to to pet charities. Nicely done, especially for the holidays. And what better person to have on the podcast for the right before the holidays than a person who has directed so many amazing. I mean, probably one of the most treasured holiday films, Home Alone. Uh, Chris Columbus is the best dude. I mean, first of all, he wrote Gremlins and Goonies, uh, and he also uh, directed... I mean, he's done a lot of stuff. I'm just giving you some... I'm giving you some of the highlights. And also directed Home Alone, Mrs. Doubtfire, Adventures in Babysitting, which is a rad movie. If uh, I i got to watch that again. I'm going to watch that again over the holidays. It's been a a minute since I've seen it, but I loved that movie. Um, And also, I think it's Mrs. Doubtfire. The first two Harry Potter films he directed. Uh, Also, um, he has coming out The Christmas Chronicles 2, where Kurt Russell is Santa. He produced the first one on Netflix, and then the second one just came out, Christmas Chronicles 2, with Kurt and Goldie. And uh, he directed that, and... uh, I mean, look, you know, I think his movies have so much heart and he's so good at making movies with heart because he himself has so much heart. Uh, we met in 2015. I got this amazing email one day that said, Hey, uh, would you like to present Daniel Radcliffe with his star on the Hollywood walk of fame? He's asking if you want to do it. And I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, I want to do that. How could you, of course, you know, I want to do that. How... That's not even a question. Yes. Uh Dan is also an exceptionally nice fellow. And uh, and so I did. I went and presented the star and and Chris was also there and spoke spoke for Dan in the presentation. And uh and you know, I was just kind of fanning out over Chris and his movies and I was really kind of leaning into Gremlins uh, as well and um he said, "Oh, you know, well I'm writing Gremlins 3." And my after I scooped my jaw up off the floor and reattached it because I, at that time, I don't know if anyone knew that. I certainly didn't know that. Uh, that he was writing that, and so we became pals, and every once in a while, I would, you know, try to get a peek at the Gremlins 3 script, which I have not seen yet, but occasionally, like, hey, how's it going with the script? If you, oh, I'm so embarrassed I do this, if you need someone to look over it for, like, why would he, why would I be that person? Anyway, uh, I tried, I tried, but uh, he was always incredibly kind and, and sweet to me. And uh, and it was just an absolute pleasure to have him on the podcast, and certainly someone that you know. Look, if someday maybe I might want to try directing something, and he is someone that I would definitely um, bug <laughs> to get advice from. And so there actually is a lot of directing advice in this podcast and also just some great stories about movies that you've seen and love and so uh yeah just a really great warm and also funny guy and uh it was a a real honor to have him on so this is the id10t podcast number 1105 As we start the thing, right before the holidays, this is the holiday podcast song. It's not quite on the holidays, but maybe you'll listen. On or after the holidays, which would make it the After the Holidays song. And maybe if it's 2021, in the spring of 2021, you can say, hey, it's the April 21 podcast song. Cause podcasts are available whenever you fucking feel like it. I didn't have to swear at the end, but that's what I do when I get insecure with bits. Uh, Roll the thing. Initiating ID10T protocol. have you been? Are you good? I mean, I would imagine as a writer and director, you you probably stay home in front of your computer a lot anyway.
0: Uh, Yeah, but I, you know, I don't tend to, we were in heavy post-production when COVID hit. So I basically, you know, rented out this kind of guest house that is a complete, worked as the complete post-production facility for Christmas Chronicles too, So we did everything from editing to sound mixing, recording the orchestra in London via Zoom in separate rooms for each piece. Oh, my uh, God. Color timing. They built a tent for color timing. It was wild. But we got the whole thing done and accomplished. And it, nothing changed. The movie's at, at the exact same level it would have been if I, if I had to drive into Hollywood every day. I mean, I do I have to say that
2: I've been very encouraged because my wife is shooting a movie in New Mexico and the level of um, safety has been very reassuring. Like they test everyone every day, everyone's been negative every day, and it's been really like comforting to go, Oh, okay. It we do adapt. It is possible if everyone's following protocols and every you know, everyone wears a mask, there are very strict rules. Right. And, um, and I go back to shoot a show in December and it's the same thing where it's just like super strict rule. And it's like, okay, right. I'm just glad that people are able to like, that we're able to work in these environments and we've are finding ways to do it as safely as possible during the most surreal timeline. What fucking timeline are we in? We're in fucking, <laughs> we're in, we're in the timeline and I'm not the first person to say this, but I do believe we're in the timeline where Biff snuck himself the Sports Almanac and, and <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> it's,
0: it's very strange. <laughs> like, it is, um, I, you know i I don't struggle personally with depression, but you know it is a depressing time.
2: Well, I think that the, the the trick is to it it it, it sucks because because we're stuck there's just not there's we're not as distracted as we normally would be and so you know you're just sitting at home with nothing to do and maybe it's just like reading too much news or watching too much this or just into and then at the same time just knowing like i mean i technically can leave the house but i kind of can't at the same time right (laughs) so it is it is this like Realization. I think what it really has done is to kind of shatter the illusions, like the safety bubbles that we we just assumed like that everything was, it was in place, you know, yeah. but I do, I am seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. I do feel like, you know, things will normalize, but I am, I'm just very encouraged that we have adapted in so many ways, um, you know, and obviously not, it's it's not like it's been fun, but the upside of like, well, I've gotten to spend so much more time with my wife. I've gotten to really think about what I, you know, things that I want to do and learn things. And so it's, I don't know. I've just been trying to make the most of it, but it sounds like that the point that you were at in the movie was sort of the perfect time for you to just
0: be fully engrossed in that. It was, it was. And we did, you know, I was, Deliriously happy last night because we held uh, our premiere. They set up a drive-in on the roof of the Grove in Hollywood. And oh
2: yeah, yeah, that top of that.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was great. I mean, it was great to get out. How, how was it? It's fantastic. Now people honk their horns if they're instead of laughing. So we had a lot of <laughs> horn honking. <laughs> so we knew I know. we knew if something <laughs> was funny.
2: I have so many I've have, I've have friends who've done the a little bit of the drive-in stand-up circuit and I just don't think I can do it the honking of the horns no nah. it's just it's just really it's just very surreal it just it just feels like it just sounds like you're being heckled by
0: robots like I don't know <laughs> it's just feels, it's so twilight zone exactly exactly but it was hey look it was the we got a premiere out of it, you know, so it was good. And I got, I got to go to a drive-in, which I haven't done for years, which is a lot of fun. That first
2: Christmas Chronicles movie was so much fucking fun. I mean, I, we were on board the second we heard about it. We're like, fucking Kurt Russell, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's basically like Big Trouble in Little North Pole, you know? Like, it's, right. it's and he's, he's great. And so I'm so excited. But you just produced the
0: first one, correct? I produced the first one and we, I just, we really got close, Kurt and I, we hit it off. We were, you know, I was usually as a producer, you're on the set for about, for me, about three weeks and then I leave, you know. But Kurt and I were rewriting every scene the night before we'd meet and then, so we really got close and then when the first one was successful uh, and the idea of a second one came along, I, I called Kurt and said, are you interested in this? And he said, yeah, but, let's not do what we did the first time around. I said, I have no desire to remake the first movie, you know, another night on the town with Santa Claus in Chicago or wherever we were going to be. I I was like, let's dig into the mythology of who father Christmas was, who Santa Claus was. Kurt treats this like a method actor. He's obsessed with this role. And he went off and wrote almost 200 pages of Santa Claus's backstory. Oh my God. It's true. It's true. He takes it very seriously. And he, you know, he started with the mythology when the guy was a bishop in, you know, Turkey in 732 AD and went through Mr. Mr. Santa and Mrs. Claus's relationship and how they met and the building of the village. Anyway, we didn't put all of that into the movie, but we leaned into the mythology. And we leaned into it with such a kind of integrity and a seriousness in one sense that, you know, I said, we're going to Potterize, we're going to Harry Potterize the Santa Claus mythology so we've built this even bigger than potter we built the biggest set i've ever been on for santa's village and we just treated it with the utmost respect and and it you know i think it shows it's a big big action adventure fantasy film it's just uh it's it's i'm so proud of it you know it's
2: i never fit i i don't know i'm never surprised when I hear that super successful people just put in a lot of extra work, so would you say like, oh yeah, Kurt Russell wrote two hundred pages, and uh, like, oh, okay, yeah, I get, yeah, it's not like success is not an accident, you know, like, right? There, there are parts of it. It's just all those things that people never see or even think about, and I think that's really kind of the um, the artist just making all the work disappear. And even though he may never say in the film. This is the, here's the 200 page. It's, he knows that in his mind and that directs and informs his performance. And you would think a guy like Kurt Russell, look, if he just wanted to show up, he'd probably be fine. You know what I mean? He'd probably do a great job if he was just like, what are we doing? Okay. I'll stand over there. He's fucking Kurt Russell. He'd probably do a great job, but it just is so much more endearing to hear that he put that much effort into it.
0: Oh yeah, I mean he's he has said I think publicly that he wants to play this role for the rest of his life. Now imagine that. And I someone asked him, I think it was earlier this week in an interview, why why did you choose now? And he said, I'm finally old enough to play the character. But he's yeah. he's been obsessed with it, and it's and it shows. I mean, for me as a director, it makes my job particularly easy because he's prepared in a deep way. You know, and he'll get pissed off if you. He's, he, he gets pissed off if people don't take this Santa Claus thing seriously. And quite frankly, Santa Claus has always been kind of treated kind of in a silly way in film and TV forever and ever and ever. Maybe there's only a couple of great Santa Claus performances, but I don't think any of them stand up to Kurt.
2: It's pretty remarkable when you think about the, like the stratified layers of his career going back to the Disney films – of the sixties, like, you know, computer or tennis shoes or strongest man in the world or any of those. And you think like, Oh, he was a, he was basically like a Disney teen heartthrob guy. And then just each decade just kind of kept like upping the ante on types of stuff he would do. And it just like the sum total of all of that. And then fucking tombstone, you know, like it, the sum total of all that work it's like it just it all had to happen in a certain way for him to be ready to yeah do this. but the breadth of his career is is remarkable
0: oh there's no question about it and he's just you know he's perceived he's an interesting guy because I don't think he does you see him on you'll see him on talk shows and you'll see him being interviewed during press for movies like this but he doesn't do a lot so I've always been fascinated by people like that. And I think that's great, but you don't get to see them that often. You know, it's like you never see them that much. So they're much more fascinating as, as people and actors. If you overexpose yourself as an actor, I think the mystery is gone. And uh, by the way, he's just got, he's, he's got a tremendous amount of integrity. You know, I think he treats every role. uh, He may not think he treats every role with the integrity of Santa Claus, but I don't think I've ever seen the guy phone it in no matter what the movie was, you know, yeah, he's definitely,
2: a, he's, he's someone that I've tried to get on the podcast before and I've never been able to. And I think, and I do feel like there are some people that just go, you know, I don't like to talk about what I do. I don't like to talk about myself. It, it's weird. Like the more open you are, the harder it is sometimes for people to, there, there are a lot of actors I think who go, no, but if people know who I am, I didn't take this job so I could be myself. I took this job so I could be other characters. If people know me too much. Right, then it's hard to imagine me disappearing into a
0: role, you know, so I completely understand that right yeah he's a notorious, you know he's notoriously private with his family and he likes to keep it that way. I mean he's always photographed on the streets of Aspen with his grandkids or Goldie or something, but he's not you know he doesn't put up with that stuff lightly
2: well, let's talk about you a little bit, Chris Columbus, because first of all, if people haven't seen it the the Netflix series where, you, where is it, uh, is it the movies that made us? Yeah. Yeah. The The Home Alone one is like, it's fucking mind-blowing. Right. And it also, I'm so glad it got made because that whole series, again, is just so illuminating. Like, it's fucking hard to make a movie and it's hard to make a good movie because it just feels like in every instance, everything is out to wreck the ship as you're right. trying to, Pilot it up against a current right and somehow, through you know experience wisdom, and I think some i don 't know elven magic it things come together in a in a magical way right did you ever were you ever emotionally prepared <laughs> when you first started out? I think you went to tish yeah were you, did you have any idea? that making a film was any more than just like, Oh, I want to make a movie. I, you know, hopefully it'll be good. Like, Oh, there's so much involved. That's not the art of it, but the business of it and the politics of it and the, you know, like being kind of a ship's captain. What, what was the experience like when you first started writing and directing?
0: Well, I mean, I knew that the only, I, I was told by my agent that the only way you're ever going to direct is if you write and you get a couple of movies made and hopefully one or two of them are successful. So that was the goal is to become a writer first. So I was going to do a movie with Paul Newman once. And he said to me, you know, uh, kid, your uh, this business is 50% talent and 50% luck. And I really have learned that over the years. I mean, the, the home alone story is the perfect ca- case of luck. You know, I had to drop out because of Chevy chase being such a dick out of um, Christmas, uh, uh, what was it called? Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation, yeah. Yeah, and I even shot Second Unit and I had to call John Hughes and say, I can't do this. When I had everything to lose, I just come off a picture that was a total disaster and uh, commercially and critically and I thought, I'm never going to direct again. So John gives me Christmas Vacation, bam, I tell him I'm not doing it. He's never going to send me another script. Two weeks later, he sends me home alone. So that's luck. That's like he should have never done that. When I wrote Gremlins, 50 producers rejected it. But the luck of Steven Spielberg leaving his office on a Friday night, passing his assistant's desk, and seeing that script sitting at the top of a pile, he picked it up and brought it home for the weekend to read because he liked the (laughs) title. So it's just those kind of things that propel you into a a career. But back to your question, which is, yeah, I, I, I mean, I never... I've now accepted how hard it is to make a movie and it's, it's not when I see these directors, some directors coming to the set in a fancy suit and like treating it like, and I'm like, dude, this is like, this is like the hardest work you're ever going to do. You have to get in the mud. You have to get down and dirty with your crew and kill yourself every day and give your crew your energy. No bullshit. Don't sit on a fucking director's chair. Sit back with the, your megaphone. Get off your ass. Billy Wilder had a funny thing. He was like, he called them dead-ass directors. He said, the worst directors you'll ever see are dead-ass. I did an interview with Billy Wilder when I started out as a Oh, wow. So I got to do it for American Film Magazine. He said, I, I hate dead-ass directors more than anything. He said, directors who don't interact, who are always sitting in their chairs and back- And I feel the same way. I just feel that energy transfers to the actors. So I luckily have a lot of energy and I, you know, and I feel that I just need, particularly when you're working with children to give that back. So I don't, I know it's hard to make a movie, but it's also when it all comes together, because sometimes all the parts don't come together. And that's why you get sometimes mediocre movies or bad movies. You know, when everything strikes, when everything everyone's working at the top of their game, you get a good movie.
2: Yeah, but I – and I'm a very forgiving film fan. Like, I'm not snobby about stuff, you know, especially because Lydia – my wife Lydia and I watch an exorbitant amount of horror films. And horror is a really interesting genre because the turnover rate is so high. There's so many horror films. I would say – I mean, I don't know if it's more than – I don't know if the output's more than any other genre, but it's a lot. And so when you watch a lot of horror films, you just – you see like – how things evolve and how things move and you know and watching watching films you you can kind of go okay this movie was fine it could have been better but what happened what went wrong and I know there's not always one answer I'm sure it's a lot of things like maybe they maybe someone spilled a soda on a camera and they lost a bunch of they lost a card or I have no idea right just it's the idea that So many things can go wrong. You have to have a plan, but be flexible, it seems like. But just keeping everyone on the same page all the time, because everyone's going to, you want everyone, I would imagine to come up with their own ideas, but you also want to make sure that everyone kind of has the same vision, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, but you get, you just have to think on your feet. That's the biggest surprise. You're prepped. You have to be extraordinarily well prepared when you get to the set in the morning. And then, that you have to be prepared to also throw all of that out of the window because you can have an actor who say, you say, okay, I need you to move from here to here over, over here and sit on the chair and pick this up an actor, certainly not Kurt Russell, but other actors I've worked with have said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, there goes my plan. But first of all, how do I talk them into it? How do I sweet talk them into maybe doing it? And then, that doesn't work sometimes, and then you just you just have to you almost like a therapist sometimes with actors. You just have to figure out a way to get your vision and make them happy as well. Um, so that's that's the big wrench that can be thrown into your day. Or if an actor's unprepared, if they don't know their lines. That's another tough one. Is there have is
2: there any kind of difference? that you've noticed because you said you would, you know, when you first started, you came off a movie that didn't really work. And is there a difference to you in the feeling when you're making something of when things work and when they don't, or is it just kind of a surprise? Like, is it just sort of a surprise? Like, did you come off that last movie and go, Oh, well, I don't know. I didn't really feel that strongly about this or I thought it was great. and It didn't work. I mean, like, do you, do you know, is there, is there like an internal barometer?
0: Yeah, there was a movie I made Um, I, you know, when it's working, you don't know how well it's going to do, but you know, if it's working, you know, I did a, uh, a film version of rent and I knew it was working. I knew we were capturing lightning in a bottle every day, but it didn't do well at the box office. So that I knew was working, but it didn't work for the audience for whatever reason. Um, but I did a film. I'm not going to mention which one that as I was shooting, I knew was in week two. I was like, this is a disaster. It's a total and utter disaster. And by the t- and I, by the time we were editing, I still knew it's not working. It's getting a little better, but we're never going to fix it. And then we take it into a, a preview situation, and it it does not do well in the preview. And then we take it to another preview. But at that point, I knew it's this is it. This is as good as it's going to get. So during that preview, as opposed to being a responsible director, this is years ago. I decided to go. It was in a multiplex. I, I left. I couldn't watch the movie anymore. And I went into another theater and watched whatever they were playing. So you do know, you do know. And I haven't had that situation happen in over 25, 20 some years, but I, and it also convinced me, you have to be working on, so, you have to be so committed and so passionate about the project that you can never, ever Think it's you're going to have an easy day. You just have to be. You have to hit the ground running. You know.
2: Yeah, but it's such a. It fe- to me, it just feels like such a strange emotional uh, roller coaster because the you know television can take a long time, but film leaves that in the dust. Like film can take years, and so you have to have the same passion all the way through. But then when it's done. Somehow you have to be done with it and move on and do it all over again. And that can take years. And, it, and to maintain that consistent level of passion for something, which is going to grow and evolve and change. And you got to hold on to that, whatever that nugget is that made it special for you and be open to evolving it. It like, that sounds like such an emotional steeplechase and probably I would guess part of the challenge Right. It, or it, it's,
0: or but the, it's the part you love. I mean, the part you love is doing something that people haven't seen before or doing something that excites you. Or like, for instance, Potter was so amazingly exciting because we were building the world just like Christmas Chronicles, too. And building the world of Potter, you know, there was a lot of, you know, certainly there's a lot of anxiety because you knew those books were amazingly popular at the time there were three of them when we started and if if i screwed up any little thing it's over you know it's i'm not only will i get fired if the first two weeks of shooting but the fans are going to be disappointed and for the fans you're talking about the world so we needed to just make sure that the vision of potter that my vision was, would sync up with J.K. Rowling's vision. And we met in Scotland when I first got the job, and I explained to her for over three hours what my vision was, and she said to me, well, that's my vision as well, and that, that was it. I was off and running, and I felt like I could do what I did. But anyway, to answer your question, after two of those films, and after you know, my team and I had basically created this whole world, and it, this, this was the Potter world, we knew the films were going to get pro- progressively darker, And I had shot two 160-day schedules back-to-back, so I was exhausted. And I was ready to walk away. I said, you are like, why don't you do the third? And I'm like, because I've kind of done it. You know, I've done it. Let's do something else. So that's the excitement for me is doing something new and creating that. So because then you can get a little lazy if you're just doing it, I think, if you're doing it over and over again. What's the really?
2: Yeah, because you have to live with it. It's not like... I mean, I often think it's it's you know, we really elevate and celebrate actors, and rightfully so, there are some really amazing actors, but their performances, you know, they're they have to like the right person has to edit them, the right person right. has to direct them, the right person has to light them, do their makeup. You know, it's like there are so many there are so many uh elements that that really have to come together but you live with all of it from start to beyond the finish of it. You know, like you, yeah. you have to have like 10 different jobs, basically. And is, is that part of it? Like, is there, is there a, what what part do you love and what part is not your favorite about the process?
0: Uh, I, I actually, I gotta be honest with you. I love it all. I really love the entire process. I love prepping a film because you're you're working with your production designer and designing sets and creating costumes. I love shooting probably more than any of it. I, I love being on the set and actually shooting. And then you're kind of exhausted after you finish and you get into post-production. And then you're creating the film and the film is coming to life. And uh, I just, I do, I love it, you know, and I don't think I'll ever stop. That's the thing. I just, you know, there's no reason I I can see for me retiring ever, unless they don't want to work with me anymore, but that, that would be it really. But what an
2: incredible time to have, like you've gotten to see a few different eras of film in the sense of, you know, if you were a director from, let's say the twenties up through the seventies, I feel like the technology for films didn't change a ton in that time, you know? Right, And you've seen so many technological changes since you started, you know, in the, in the early eighties. That I would imagine, would you say that's helped um, fuel your passion further? Is like, because when the first Potter film, you know, that it was, it was X Men, um, Sam Raimi, Spider Man, and Potter, when they all came out around the same time, 2000, 2001, it really sort of elevated what had been previously thought of as a very niche, like nerd culture, to a very mainstream, like, oh no, this, is, this has very broad appeal. And I think part of that was that the technology finally caught up. To allow um, these, you know, like much more broad, imaginative, uh, you know, <laughs> visionscapes for,
0: for right. film. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was like I'm so envious of kids who grew up in like the 70s, 80s who were kids like when Star Wars began, or whatever. yeah, me. And even, even, even later, you know, suddenly I grew up with, I was obsessed because I was originally wanted to go to New York and draw Marvel comics for Stan Lee. That's all I wanted to do. And then I shifted into wanting to make movies, but I, I had nothing as a kid. We had those, we had terrible Marvel cartoons. There was a Spider-Man TV series. I remember that series. He was like in a, like baggy pajamas and then they made a bad Captain America movie and it's just it goes on and on and on and then I don't really care about that stuff as much anymore it doesn't hold the magic but imagine you're 10 years old and you see Avengers Endgame I mean my god that's like or you see Raiders of the Lost Ark when you're 10 I can't even imagine it so the technology has changed and it's enabled all of those things you know Marvel Comics was not respected that my my parents called them funny books. Well, you're right. reading one of your funny books again, and it's suddenly become the biggest juggernaut in the movie business. And it's—I love it. I just love it. I don't have any. Oddly, even with my background as a Marvel freak, I have no desire to direct uh, one of those movies because I think there's a ton of guys who, and, and women who can do it better than I can. Um, those particular movies. And they've done them, them so well, you don't need me to do it. I've got to try to figure out something new to do. But yeah, the technology, even going from film to digital, has changed immensely, and you save more time. You actually get to sp- spend more time with your family because when you shoot film, then you have to leave after you shoot for 12 hours, then you got to go to a theater and watch what you shot the day before from a projector, which was magical because you didn't know what you had. So... I, but at the same time, you get an extra hour and a half to eat dinner with your kids. So that the digital age is, is welcome, although we've lost. I'll never forget the moment in Potter where we shot the film where the students walk into the Great Hall for the first time and the floating candlesticks were there. And we did those practically with strings. Mm-hmm. And until the, until the fire started burning the strings, and they fought, so we only got two shots. But when we saw that the next day projected, it was the most magical shot I had, ever, I had ever done as a director and certainly the cinematographer, and the entire room erupted in applause. And that's the kind of magical moment you don't get anymore because what you're watching on set today, is exactly what you're going to get on film. You know, So you know, you've seen your dailies. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. Featuring a reimagined exterior with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and an interior built with robust materials and integrity, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Its durability has been tested to the extreme while the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender.
2: Do you have a sense of because I I am I am kind of interested in this idea of 50 percent, you know, luck and 50 percent talent. But I do think you do engineer the luck in a way. It's like you wrote a script, you wrote a good script, you got it into the right place. Like you set up the opportunity for that lucky moment for Spielberg to pick up the script of Gremlins. But when you think like if literally up almost anyone else at that time had found that script, it would have been a totally different movie because he had, he had the heart and the, but, but also the resources to manifest that. I mean, like you think about a creature driven movie now, it's like, it's kind of a no brainer, but back then it was, you know, like it, 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 they, they weren't, um, they weren't like super mainstream, obviously, if you liked horror movies or you liked sci-fi you know, there was a niche kind of genre audience around it. And there was, you know, the the Tom Savini's of the world and people who did like really great special effects and right. Rick Baker, obviously Rick Baker. But, but at the time when you're writing Gremlins, is your vision for it like a big blockbuster film? Or are you thinking like, well, you know, it's probably because of what it is, it might be a little more niche. Did you
0: even think about that kind of stuff back then? I just want, I really, the goal was I wanted to write a horror film. So I just, you know, I was living in a loft in New York city with little mice running around nibbling at my fingers at night when I was sleeping with my hand over the bed. And I was like, that's creepy. These little things are creepy. And that was the germation of, of the idea. So uh, I just want to write a straightforward horror film it and it's exactly what I did. It was a hard R rated horror film. I mean, Billy Peltzer runs into his house. A gremlin is attacking his mother upstairs and her head rolls down the stairs. So that, that was the level of... Oh, you, wow. You go into... the There was a scene that's not in the movie where the gremlins go into a McDonald's and they eat all the people, but they don't touch the food. So, <laughs> so, so I was like... It was that kind of stuff that I was having fun with. And mm-hmm. Steven being... Steven Spielberg and brilliant you know, he's my godfather in terms of me having a career, Uh, he knew that he could find a bigger audience if we toned that stuff down, made the script funnier, and uh, added Gizmo, you know, his idea, Stephen's brilliant idea was that Gizmo doesn't change, that Gizmo stays good. And in my script, all the gremlins changed that night. So there was no Gizmo character leading you Through the movie, and that was a stroke of genius because that taught me. So I always consider Stephen graduate school of filmmaking. That taught me that the audience had someone to connect to, one of the creatures, and with Billy and Gizmo as a team, it made that. It gave that a little more emotionality, if you want to call it that. So I was so thrilled with what Gremlins became. I thought Joe Dante did a brilliant job. I love the fact. It was pre CGI. So all the gremlins were puppets. How great is that? There's one stop motion shot in the movie. That's it. You know, all the gremlins are walking down the street. So I think Joe, I think it's Joe Dante's masterpiece in a sense, you know, and it's not because of my writing. It's because all these things came together at the right time again. And Joe and I tapped, we both shared that, that that shared sense of dark comedy that, you know, I probably haven't done since.
2: And was that is that was that kind of one of the main things you learned from Spielberg was was attaching the emotionality or the or putting in the sort of humanity of it? Because that that really is his like magic gift, like besides being an amazing director for so many other reasons, but just infusing something with that, with the humanity and and giving people the connection, like finding that emotional connection for the audience. Is that do you think that's kind of like one of was that a superpower that you absorbed from him?
0: Well, I always, I mean, I have to to be honest, I was always, the films that always moved me when I was a kid and also when I was in film school were the films that were the most emotional, the films that could make me cry and also could make me laugh. So I was a big fan of It's a Wonderful Life and all of those, all the Frank Capra films. So that was in my heart to begin with. I didn't, I didn't understand or I couldn't comprehend at My age at the time, I was probably 23 when I was working with Steven, that that you could add that kind of emotionality to what, what I perceived as a horror film, you know? So I thought, Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting way to go. And then I've carried that with me throughout the better films I've done that, 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 that have been successful. Um I've carried that with me throughout my career because it is, it, it is a key reason why people come back to certain films, you know, over the years, like nobody, you know, there's certain films of mine that nobody is going to watch again, but there are films like Doubtfire and, um, and Home Alone that both work because of their intense, not because of the comedy. They work because of the comedy, but they work because of the emotional complexity, if you want to call it that. Even Home Alone, which you didn't, wouldn't think is complex when Kevin sees the, the old man Marley reunited with his granddaughter and son, there is there's a lot going on in that moment. And uh, you know, I just think that that's why people keep coming back to the films. I remember that movie was not well reviewed when it came out. Home Alone. What? Oh yeah, history has a way of changing everything. And I was crushed because I read reviews, you know, and I I was like, it was like back in the day when reviews were faxed to you, you know, you didn't have this. (laughs) So I I go to the fax machine, and or they were sent to you uh, on a Monday sometimes so you'd get a big box big FedEx box on Monday and you'd open it up and all the reviews were there and they put the good ones on one side and the bad ones on the other side and Home Alone was like bad good you know the, a giant pile of bad reviews and a tiny pile of good reviews and I thought the, the reward was the success of the film it was number one for 14 weeks so that was great but I never expected it to last now it's considered somebody interviewed me yesterday and Couple of people, you know, and I won't say it because I'm not an egomaniac, but a couple of people called it a classic. Now, can you imagine where I was back then and actually thinking this is a classic? I never thought that. I never. <laughs> I, I, we set out to make a timeless movie. The mantra to the crew on all my movies: let's make it timeless. Let's. I remember saying, let's pretend it's 20 years from now. You turn on the uh, you, you turn on the TV at 2 a.m. I want Home Alone to feel like it was just made yesterday, that it's just as fresh. So I think part of that appeal 30 years later is the fact that it still has that kind of timeless quality, even though it can't be totally timeless because it was shot in 1990s. The so wardrobe's different, technology's different. But that's what you kind of strive for.
2: And now we briefly pause to thank our sponsor for this segment of the ID10T podcast, Squarespace. Hey, maybe now's the time... You know, over the holidays, uh, during a pretty much quarantine, uh, maybe you're noodling around with some ideas, you you have some thoughts or some things that you want to create and put out into the world, and maybe now is finally the time to do that for you. So Squarespace will help you do that. It is an all-in-one platform. Anything, domains, websites, an online store, uh, marketing tools, whatever you want, Squarespace has. You can sell products or gift cards or digital products or a subscription-based thing. Uh, whatever you want to create digitally Squarespace will, they will be there for you. They will give you analytics. Um, it is the, it's optimized for mobile and you can turn your idea into an amazing website. I mean, just like world-class design, everything you need to create a beautiful, uh, and modern website. You can start with design templates. You can use drag and drop tools to make it your own. Um, Squarespace just has everything you need. All right. So 24 seven award winning customer support. If you, if you run into any snags, so listen, head on over to squarespace.com slash ID10T for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code ID10T to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thank you to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of the ID10T podcast, which now resumes. What are some of the questions that you ask? because I feel like a lot of success is asking good questions and what are some, and, and people who do well ask good questions and people who tend to struggle ask not great questions. So when you start writing or when you're starting a project, what are questions that you ask? And then when your script is done, how do you know if those questions are answered or like what, what new questions do you have?
0: I don't know if it's, a, it's, it's a never, you're at, right. It's a never ending array of questions because you hire Your crew, everyone around you—not to belittle them or to, you know, like so many directors are just monsters. You know, they're nasty, and I've heard such horror stories. And I, I want us to be a family, a real family that feel. I want my crew to feel like they can say anything to me, not be afraid, not be worried about it. And so that's that's why I'll ask them questions and value their input. And that's the smartest thing you can do, I I think. You know, in, in any business, forget it. You know, uh, so for me, it's a matter of really valuing a person's opinion and respecting every person on the crew, no matter what job they have. You know, it doesn't matter to me when I I hear horror stories about actors and people. And, you know, it's just it's just so upsetting to me because everybody's working incredibly, extraordinarily hard. You know, everybody on a film set's working hard. They they're People like us, they lead lives, they have emotional situations that could be going on at home and you don't want to make them feel like they're doing a bad job. So that's where the questions come in. You know, I'll take advice from anybody. If I don't, look, if I don't like it, I'll say thanks and move on. But if, if it's a good piece of advice, even if it's from like the, the craft service guy, uh, I, I'll take it.
2: But in terms of like story points, what questions are you asking? Like when you, if you're writing like Goonies or you're writing Gremlins and you, you get to the end, you go, okay, what questions did I answer? What am I trying to accomplish with this? Like, what are the sort of basic – what needs to be satisfied in your mind to know, like, this is ready to shoot, or this is done, or I think we did it? Like, what are those questions?
0: Well, like any sort of artistic endeavor, you, when you are working on something, you're asking yourself questions. Is this dialogue good enough? Is this – if you're shooting, is that performance the best I can get, you know? Um, but when you're creating – when you're writing a script – the goal, the end goal is not to complete your first draft as a shooting script because that you're going to be re- rewriting it, I think, forever. Ooh. You have to find a way so that the person who's you're sending it to to read, no matter who they are, will not put it down. That's the key. You can't stop turning those pages. And that is a successful script. And that's what I ask myself. Would, is there a point here where I'll put this down and be bored? or won't be interested anymore or I want to walk away and get a cup of coffee. And if you can hold someone's attention for 120 pages, you've done your job. Yeah. We uh
2: but you had nothing to do with Gremlins 2, is that correct?
0: Or well, it was back in the days before the word franchise was was used, You know, I mean, there were a couple, I guess, franchises, but the word didn't, I mean, the word existed, but it wasn't applied to movies, so. It was
2: like basically Star Wars and The Godfather, and then that was kind of.
0: <laughs> well, Indiana Jones. You Indiana know. Jones, yeah. Yeah, but that's, that was it. So it goes back to why did you leave Potter? I did it. I've done it. I'm doing something else. They, uh, Stephen called me and said, you want to write Gremlins too? I said, no, I did it. I, I did it. It's done.
2: <laughs> I cool. am What's struck by that? how. I mean, you've made a lot of really ballsy and, – and I guess maybe ballsy is it, – it's just you know yourself very well. And you know, like, what you want to do and what you think you want to do. So even, like, leaving Christmas vacation because you were having a bad experience. Or, you know, when Spielberg says, do you want to make the second movie? No, I already did that. Like, those are really strong choices. Like, you really have to be very comfortable with yourself and your voice and your your direction, in order to make those decisions, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, I, I, sometimes it's been it's been the wrong decision. Let me tell you. I mean, look, from a financial situation, certainly it's been the wrong decision a few times. But I I was listening to Howard Stern the other day, and he said um, he said why he was talking about some actor, or somebody leaving a franchise, and he's like, why would they do that? Why would you walk away from a successful franchise? It's the most insane thing. Said, if you've got a successful franchise, what's the point of leaving? That's you know. But when I was listening to that, I, I started doubting. I'm like, why did I walk away from Potter? It seemed like a seemed like such a you know smart idea at the time. And I went off and made Rent, which didn't do well at the box office, but remains one of my favorite movies. So maybe it's that. Maybe I had to do Rent in order to you know maybe I wouldn't have done such a great job on the third or fourth Potter film if I stuck around. So and it doesn't keep me up at night don't get me wrong but i you know when we do christmas chronicles if we do christmas chronicles 3 that'll be a you know it'll be an interesting inner discussion with myself so
2: yeah i mean i don't know i don't you know the idea of like why would why would you leave a franchise like i understand i feel like i understand why it's like at a certain point if you have enough money and you've done something enough what is why would more money I mean I'm assuming it's just like oh because it's more money or it's more it's like but it's not like that's not going to make you happy like you still have to enjoy what you're doing and if you're not enjoying what you're doing isn't that kind of the you know isn't that kind of the
0: goal well yeah I mean I didn't make a lot of money on gremlins so when i writing the script so what well, walking away from gremlins 2 was you know wasn't about, certainly was not about the money but the good news is we came up with the idea for goonies so i don't there may not have been a goonies had i been spending time writing gremlins 2 so oh, you know a lot of times it's worked out well and a lot of times it hasn't but i'm i'm perfectly happy where i am now yeah because we
2: have my wife bought some grem, some original rick baker gremlins but they are from 2 right uh and i don't know we i don't think we've tracked down any from one
0: (laughs) no i haven't seen any
2: uh and i i hear they deteriorate how are yours you're using good shape yeah they're they're in good shape yeah some of them some sometimes they do those latexy ones can deteriorate if they're not kept in the right environments but ours are actually they're hanging in there pretty well like they they still look they still look pretty good
0: yeah, I got a go I had a- somebody gave me a golden snitch from the first Potter movie and it's Oh wow. Sitting on my desk and I've ignored it over the years and it just looks like a a a copper <laughs> disgusting ball. Uh, gotta get- I got to I got to a real a snitch board. would
2: look like, wouldn't it? Because it's like a it's a sports ball basically, so it's like
0: It is. It, it is. Would-
2: it would get banged around and you know, there's like- a yeah. There's a, there's a lot of uh, Hogwarts kids just grabbing at it. Like, of course it's going to get fucked up. You know, yeah. like it's, it's been used, of course. Right. Uh, did you ever see the Key and Peel sketch about the pitching of Gremlins 2?
0: Brilliant. It's fantastic. Yeah. I love it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, What are you... Uh, now that you're done with Chronicles 2, are you... Years ago, when we met at the Dan Radcliffe thing, you were like, Gremlins 3. Is that is that something you go back and work on every once in a while? Are you allowed to say where you're at with that? Are you done with it? What's happening?
0: Uh, there's a script. So we're just, uh, script, Warners has the script. Um, and we're just waiting to see, I don't know if there's some legal thing or we're just waiting, waiting for some, Answers from within the studio, not whether or not they're going to make it, but how they're working on deals. And uh, you know, these are deals that are 30 plus years old, so um, that's it, it's really lawyers and agents and stuff. So we'll see. Are you still excited about it? I am. I don't know if I want to direct it, but I certainly maybe they'll let hopefully Joe direct it. But I uh, I think it's, it's as twisted and dark and uh. Wild is the first one I uh, I wrote. I mean, Stephen uh, texted me after he read it and said, "I got to tell you, this I this is how I felt after I read the first Gremlins." So he loved it.
2: So we'll see. That's so interesting. I mean, it. it I, I think I think we all have this kind of distorted linear idea in my on our minds of like, oh, once you hit a certain level, you are able to do X, Y, and Z, and things get easier and and I feel like, I don't know, maybe some things get easier, but, I mean, you've literally made some of the biggest films in the history of film, and it still sounds like, oh, yeah, it's still not always easy to get stuff made or to just manifest something, even if you're really passionate about it.
0: No, it never gets easier. I mean, it, I mean, it's easy. Easy being, they always kind of, people want you to work within your wheelhouse, sort of, which I get. I didn't get... Probably 15, 10, 15 years ago. Um, back then I was like, I got to try different things. I've got to try you know, a, a really serious drama. That's I got to do that. But then oh, as the years go by, and as you said, the, the generational thing happens, and what's fascinating about that to me is that the first wave of kids who grew up on, on the movies I was writing, who are now older, that's what they want to talk about. They want to talk about those 80s movies that I wrote. Then there's the Home Alone Doubtfire generation, and that's a whole different generation, and that's what they want to talk about. And then there's the Potter generation. And now there's the Chronicles generation. And there's that's like almost four generations of different kids who want who whose childhoods you've touched in some way, in a good way. And that that's a great feeling. But what I'm saying is I've come to terms with the fact that those are the best movies I can make. They all have something in common, even if they're fantasies or comedies. And for me to try to, I don't need to go. I just don't feel any need right now in my career to go off and, you know, prove to somebody that I can make the deer hunter. It's just not, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't, I don't certainly don't, unless I read someone sends me a script, I'm willing to do that. I have this, I don't even know if you know, about it. I have a, side production company called Maiden Voyage Films. Now, Maiden Voyage was started by my daughter and I uh, six, seven years ago, maybe longer, um, where we wanted to help first-time filmmakers make their film for the first time, help them find financing, help them produce the film. And so over the course of the years, we have made some of those movies that I probably won't direct. And we've been able to help, you know, we did a movie called The Witch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Eggers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eggers did, and then we did The Lighthouse. Which was great. And, uh, and so Eggers and I are doing another, he's shooting something right now, but after that, we've got a movie that we're going to do. So it's just, when you follow these these uh, young directors, you know, we did Patty Cakes, which was this rap kind of musical that was great. And so these directors are so thankful. And they, they make the kind, I support the kind of movies that I won't make. But the movies I love, that doesn't mean, look, Deer Hunter is one of my favorite movies. I don't think, I I don't know if I can make it, but by doing that, by seeing a movie like The Lighthouse, you know, which is anti-technology, which is a great thing about Eggers, is he went back and shot The Lighthouse with black and white film. He refused to digitize. He shot The Lighthouse with cameras from the 50s and lenses from the 20s. And that's what gives it that look. So... I just love it. And they, these guys, these kids, they're not such kids. I mean, some of them are 40, but um, these men and women really inspire me as filmmakers. So I, I get inspired by that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. And also, you know, you've made a lot of different kinds of movies, so it's not even like you've made, you know, intimate stories and then like broad epic stories. And is it really just a case by case basis? Like, well, this is just what this story needs, or I really want to try to do this kind of thing next because it, feels fresh or I haven't done, I haven't quite done that yet.
0: I mean, maybe, I mean, I did I do, that has happened. You know, that, that is the reason I did rent. That is the reason. Um, I probably did Bicentennial man. Um, but again, Bicentennial man didn't work that well for whatever reason. Again, it probably, I can tell you why Bicentennial man wasn't, uh, wasn't a great movie because I have no concept of the future. That's my weakness. I don't know what the future... If you told me in 1990 that I'd be sitting here in 2020 and we didn't have time travel or flying cars, I would have said, you're insane. You're going to see all of those things. What we have is retro-style baseball stadiums that look like they were built in the 40s. So nothing's changed. Everything's changed. So the the things that have changed, are, and, and I guess the closest to the future is what we're going through now, which is some version of the apocalypse. But... Those are the only futures that work for me in science fiction. Are the really dreary, dark, apocalyptic futures? You, I put some flying cars and crazy, nonsensical stuff in *Bicentennial Man*. And I think it looks terrible. Yeah, but you still have to
2: know, like, it, you know, the flexibility that you have with each project because, you know, a film like *Home Alone*, you're directing a child, and so you have to direct the performance in a different way. As someone like Robin Williams, who you also wisely knew like, well, you got to let him do what he's going to do because he's the best at it. And you figured out how to, how to work that way. They just, it it feels like there's not like one type of thing. It seems to me, and especially like with Kurt Russell, who goes and writes a 200 page dissertation on the backstory of of Chris Kringle, you, it, it seems like you're really good at adapting to
0: whatever the situation needs. Do you see yourself that way? Oh, God, yeah. You have to be incredibly adaptable as a director. You ha- I think any, any director worth their weight and salt is really, truly going to have to be adaptable because you don't know what kind of actor you're going to get. With Macaulay, he hadn't been on camera for a long time. So I had to basically act with him off camera, feed him lines, do that. With Robin Williams, we made a deal. He'll do two or three scripted takes. Then he likes to play. That was his term. So in Mrs. Thatfire he would go sometimes for 22 takes. And you started with kind of the PG version. You got into the R version. And then we got into the NC-17 version on take 21 and 22. So that Robin, <laughs> you knew where you stood with Robin. With somebody like Susan Sarandon, she just wanted, you know, she just wanted, doesn't need a lot of direction because direction She's brilliant but she just wanted some slight guidance. Um, so there, every actor is different, you know? And I think even Dan Radcliffe may admit that the Potter, the first Potter films, you know, none of those kids, Dan had d- done David Copperfield, but no one else had ever, and he was only in it for four minutes. And so ev- none of those kids were on a set. So the first couple of weeks, they're just, I think they're damn happy just to be dressed in these characters and they're like, they can't believe they're on a movie set. So. One kid would say a line and they'd look into the camera, or one kid would do something and they're just like taking it all in. So, we shot the first film with four cameras because we never knew when somebody was going to break, you know. And then, as the series went on, by the time we got to the middle of part two, all those kids were good actors. So, they were really good. And so, by the time I handed them off to Alfonso, he had some damn good actors working with him. You know, you'll notice in the first. There aren't a lot of walking and talking long shots because we had to cut the movie in pieces. And by the time we got to the second movie, I could take a steady cam down the corridor of Hogwarts and Harry, Hermione and Ron could have a conversation for a minute and a half, which was great.
2: Yeah. I really, you know, Dan is, he's such a, he's such a great guy and he's, and, and as I said, when I was presenting the thing to him, you know, if he was a dick, you'd understand it. You know what I mean? But just such a nice guy. Just like such a, such a down-to-earth, you know, just a down-to-earth guy. And I imagine a lot of that is probably an influence that you had when you were directing them as children of like, hey, this, you know, like, we'll have fun. It doesn't have to mean everything. This is just, this, it's, it's playing. I mean, like, we're play acting. It's fun.
0: Yeah. I mean, I really felt protective of those kids at the time, you know, and I really wanted them. I tried to get it across. Don't grow up and be a jerk. Don't grow, I, I mean, I don't know if I said those exact words, but I really wanted kids, those kids not for it, not to go to their heads, you know, and I, I don't know if I've been successful on all, cause I have lost touch with a couple of the kids, but I know, I know it was successful with Dan. That's for sure. And Rupert, I think he's a pretty down-to-earth guy, but I haven't spoken to him in a while. Felton seems to have his heart in the right place. I mean, and Dan is the sweetest guy in the world. Um, I was talking to Tom Felton last week, and he said, um, I had to do some charity thing for him, and he was was like, yeah, it was tough when you left. I think Dan was hit hardest by it, you know? And I never knew that. It just kind of broke my heart, because I didn't really keep in close touch with them. You know, they were in England, and... I don't know. I was off doing something else. and it, it happens all the time with actors. you just like, but I, I really felt badly about that. So I do hope when all this is over, Dan and I can sit down and just hang out for a bit. I would love that.
2: Yeah, you do. It It, it is a very, uh, you know, you set up camp and you work on something and it's very intense and you're around each other a lot all the time. And then you move on and you something. I mean, there must be, there's so many, you know, it's, it's so, um, what's the right word? It transitory. I don't know. It's, it, But you never really can settle for too long. And I think that's just part of the weird nature of this this business. I'm sure it didn't even occur to you. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I got to go work on this other thing and be fully consumed by that.
0: Yeah, I think it's a – it's particularly tough on kids, which I didn't realize at the time. I had kids of my own at the time. I had four kids. But I was still – I was probably – I was obsessed with my own kids. you know. But I still wanted to be a father figure to these other kids – but I didn't realize uh, until, that, until I heard, well, I guess I've known over the years, because when we wrapped Christmas Chronicles 2, we have a young, talented actor, a young guy named Jazir Bruno. Uh, he, it was the last day of shooting, and he was in a lot of our movie. And he came up to me, and he was sobbing. I didn't realize how much he absorbed being on the set and how it was like his family now. Um, and it t- it got, again, it does take me back to those Potter days. That last time I said goodbye to the kids on the a- Askaban set, I think they were a week away from finishing. I was, you know, it was hard. It was tough. Uh, but I got to take that into consideration whenever I work with kids again, that they are going to be more emotionally connected than I will be because I have 40 other things to think about.
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
2: And then the balance, like the life balance versus the not being consumed. I mean, I think it's so easy to be consumed by the business and think that everything that we do is the most important thing in the world. And I certainly think that what we've learned in the last eight months is that there are more important things in the world, you know, even though I do, you know, yes, entertainment is important. You know, it employs people. It keeps people distracted. It's great. It's like how we, it's so much like pop culture is such a, it's just such a language of our culture now. However, how do you not get sucked into the ego parts and how do you maintain the balance so that you have space for yourself and your work and space for your kids and space for your family? Like how are, how do you, how have you learned how to balance that?
0: It was a, it was a mantra of mine since day one, you know, cause I was like, I'm not going to fuck up my kids um, in this movie business. And I thought, okay, uh, you know, no weekends. That was the first thing. No weekends. They don't work weekends. Not happening. Uh, I've worked the occasional weekend over the last two years because my kids are older and they're off doing their own stuff. But when we were a close-knit family, even on Potter, I, it was all them all the time. So that was important to me. I was insane enough to be – I think Dan probably knows this story. That when we first started Potter, before we my family moved to London, every weekend I would fly from Heathrow to – Chicago or San Francisco to see my family and oh, I went wow. back to London and I had that put in my deal just so I wasn't spending a ridiculous amount of money on airplanes but I had this whole wacky thing worked out where I'm you know I said I'd work 14-15 hours a day so we could work four day weeks and then on Friday I could leave and it worked but anyway then my family moved to London and I guess the ego thing about it is I never take it that seriously it's just what I love to do and I gotta be completely honest with you. When you said to me earlier, you said you made some of the biggest classic films of, in the history of cinema. And I'm like, oh, I wish I could, I wish I could feel good about that. <laughs> I, <really laughs> wish I, could say, I wish I could take away whatever it is that doesn't make me feel that way. I wish I could have a little of that. You know, it's just- Maybe it's good that you don't. Maybe I mean, it's good I really, that you don't. I honestly don't because I'm like constantly doubting myself Constantly reading, going to the bad review, you know, and pouring over it, and um, yeah, I really do wish I, I just desperately wish that I could. I, I wish I could say you've made some great films. You've made some great films. I can't. The only thing I do know is that Home Alone has survived thirty years, and it's and the critics were wrong. So that's that's a bit of a victory, you know. The, the Mrs. Doubtfire all has survived all these years. The critics were wrong. So. Uh, I don't know. I guess that's probably the only joy I get. I don't know though. I mean you I mean look
2: has it's you know maybe it's part of your process and it's sort of part of your ritual and it's part of what keeps you working hard and tri- but you know has reading reviews ever helped you in any way? Like what is it <laughs> good or bad? I mean, I know we all have a tendency to do it, but when you really look back, or do you, do you ever go, I'm really glad I read that review. That was really helpful.
0: I, You know, no, because it just sticks with you. <laughs> you know, I remember Roger Ebert just saying, calling one of my films the worst film ever made, gave it like a half a star, oh. one of the worst films of the year. And then 10 years later or so, giving both Harry Potter films four stars, saying they were brilliant. And that was the big... Moment for me. I was like so excited that he, you know, that that was, that that was part of, you know, that I was so excited to get that validation. And I still weirdly seek it. And my wife is always like, stop it. Just stop it. You know, you've got to stop reading them. And my kids are like, Dad, you got to stop. So, um, but yeah, maybe I got to stop reading them. Maybe you're right. It's just,
2: I mean, look, it, to, to me, it seems like good or bad the bad ones didn't really mean anything for the commercial successes and it it's not like unless i mean look unless you ever read a bad review and go oh my god that's actually a really good point okay that's constructive criticism i'll remember that for the next time you know it but if if it's just and i think there's probably a little bit of a sport in sometimes reviews you know can be like how much can we tear this down in a way that's toxic you know but in general I sort of feel like you look at everything that you've done in the last, you know, forty years. Uh, films that have been critically successful, films that have been financially successful, and ones that haven't on both ends. But still, it hasn't really changed that you've gotten to do all these amazing things. And I bet even the times when you went, "Oh my god," you know, Rod Reber took a shit on this. I'm never going to work again. This is it. It wasn't it. You still. You know, like, do you, do you take away some of the wisdom? Is it just none of that stuff meant anything? Because you just fucking put your nose to the grindstone and you just you just kept at it anyway. Somehow.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's it, it's it's self torture. It's it's probably something therapy would help me with greatly if I could ever get out <laughs> of my house to see a therapist. Did you
2: go to Catholic school? Yes. Yep. That's it, dude. Uh, it's 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 the guilt gene. <laughs> It is
0: so... Don't don't ever feel too good, Gene. No, it was my first script. That was the first script I wrote that uh, was optioned uh, by a a producer in 1978 or something. It was called Jocks, and it was about Catholic school. Oh, that's amazing. It was about me playing football in Catholic school, and I was a terrible player, but I still wanted to be on the team for some strange reason. And then uh, how I had to deal with the nuns and the priests.
2: <laughs> I mean it's I do I I went to Catholic school too have the heavy heavy there's a heavy guilt you know and actually I I enjoyed it like I I liked you know like I enjoyed my education there I, I but 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 that sort of guilt of like don't ever feel too good if you, you right. if you feel if you feel too good you know if you're too happy about something here's nine reasons why you should feel bad so maybe maybe yeah. there's a little bit of that too
0: Yeah it's always like I think if I you know, it's just like you're always making deals with God. Like, if I don't do this, okay, I won't. I won't have that extra glass of wine, and maybe something good will happen to me tomorrow. You know, right? It's like, it's right. ridiculous. Yeah, Almost it's like a sort of like cold. it's it,
2: it's it's the sort of like karmic barter system that I think we learn of. Like, because there's a very if then. You know, it's very it's very ritualistic you say you know even even like when we'd have to go to confession every every week in school it's like okay well here's the payment for you know whatever talking back to your parents or whatever say this many hail marys say this many by so it was very much like an economy of like guilt versus payment emotional payment And I think we really absorbed that and took that into our adult lives. If I do this, then that'll be okay. If I don't do this, you know, it won't rain tomorrow. It's, it's just a, it's like the classic struggle of humanity of trying to control
0: things we have no control over. Uh, That's pretty brilliant that you said that because it hasn't occurred to me that that is exactly what the emotional situation is. You know, you feel that you're not, there's not enough penance. So the, and I got out unscathed from Catholic school because let me tell you something, I was brought up in a uh, working class town. Both my parents were factory workers, so we didn't have a lot of money. And we, you know, and I, they sent me to Catholic school. But we lived in a part of Ohio outside of Youngstown where all the problem priests were sent. You oh, know, they didn't, no. they didn't keep those guys. They didn't keep those guys in Boston or New York. Well, they kept some of them in Boston, that's for sure. But they, some of those guys that were real problems, went from lower diocese to lower diocese, and they were. No issues with, them. I had no issues. They were just, there was a creepy vibe. And that was the weirdest thing to navigate through. Right. But, oh, you mentioned the factory town. And you just reminded me that
2: I wanted to ask you about I read that you had a scholarship to Tish and you forgot to renew it. So you ended up having to work at the factory to continue your education. Is that true?
0: Absolutely true. <laughs> I was having too much fun at Tish. And all I had to, I was, I was working really hard, but I was like, to me, it was a pain in the ass to just go sign a slip of paper at the bursar's office. And my mother kept calling me week after week after week after week, and finally, she called crying and said, you lost your scholarship. Oh. So she said, you're gonna be, scholarship was, uh, I remember what it was at the time, but I, have to, I had to work all summer at the factory to renew it. But that was the same summer that my uh, sophomore teacher, a guy named Jesse Kornbluth uh, said that if I finished 20, I, I wrote a 20 page version of jocks. The script I was telling you about, he said, if I finished that, he'd show it to his agent. So I made a deal with my dad who was also working at the same aluminum factory, get me the night shift. I want to be on the night shift. And he's like, why? I said, cause then I can write. Cause every the foreman doesn't care. He's sleeping in his office. I, so I went, you know, there were these giant rolls of aluminum that they use for aluminum siding, aluminum foil. They were tons and t- they weighed tons and tons, but they were lined up and I could le- slip between two of those and, I, and write. And I finished jocks that summer working the night shift. And then I uh, submitted it and the agent accepted me and I ended up selling it. So, Oh my gosh. So that was, and that was my junior year. So the, the the loss of the scholarship is probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Cause it scared the living daylights out of me.
2: I mean, that's, that's the best, you know, like, and, and again, that's why I don't think things are 50% luck because you had this thing happen, which was, you know, eh, your fault, but you were able to spin something out of that, out of a not great situation. And I think that's sort of the key. And I think that was one of the foundations of the flexibility that you've displayed All these years later, through all these different projects, through all these different, you know, films that went great, films that were difficult, people who were difficult, people who were great, is that adaptability and just there's something about you that just gets in and does the work no matter what. And maybe that's something that isn't taught. Maybe that's just something innate that you have. But are you aware that you're motivated in that way or do you have to force yourself to be motivated in that way?
0: That is something I left out of the 50-50 equation. There's no question about that because what I'm seeing with a lot of young filmmakers or a lot of young talent here in Los Angeles, or I see it in New York when I go back, is they don't, a lot of the kids are getting a little older and are thinking about why am I not making it? You know, so talent and luck are a good thing, but you got to put in what some people would call the, those 10,000 hours, you know, you right. got to do that. And I'm seeing a lack of that. And that's, that is absolutely the key. Cause I remember a lot of nights, I wouldn't go out with my buddies drinking or whatever we were doing. Or, uh, I wouldn't go to baseball games, go into Cleveland to go see the Indians play. I was writing, you know, and you, you have to make sacrifices and you have to work. You just have to work 12 hours a day on it, you know? And that's, that's before you have a family. Cause I always knew my, I, I always knew at some point I wanted to have a big family cause I was an only child growing up. So I definitely wanted to put in the hours, you know, before I ended up, you know, with a lot of kids and I still put in the, I still put in 12 hours a day, but I got to see them on the weekends, but I just think you got to put in the time it, it but it, you're not going to make it. You're going to look at yourself at 40 and say, well, yeah, I was out golfing or I should have been writing and why I, you know, I, it took me two years to finish this script, but why does no one, because you idiot, because you got to finish it in three months and you got to be passionate about it. So I did, I mean, growing up in a working class town, one thing my parents knocked in, well, they didn't knock it into me, but they drilled it into me, which is, you know, a, a solid work ethic, which I still have to this day. If I don't do something, am I? If I take time out again, it's the Catholic guilt. If I even go out, you know, if I sit down to watch a, a movie in the middle of the day, I'm like, "Are you an idiot? You, you've got to be writing. You've got to be." I won't read. I've stopped reading books because I, it takes away time from creating stuff. <laughs> <So I'm> like, <laughs> it's crazy. And That's
2: how exciting. are you? How are you able to sort of push through? when you know you have to do a certain amount of work and your brain is just fried, or you just feel like, I don't know how to solve this problem. Is there, and then we'll wrap this up, but is there, is there a story from any of your films, any, any, you know, where it's like, we didn't know how we were going to solve this. I really thought it was all over. And then this thing happened, or here's what I did to sort of push through and conquer that.
0: Um, well, unfortunately that's, that's like once a week at a film set. You know, I mean, there's not a there's not a specificity to having to push through it, uh, an insurmountable problem. You know, it can it can ha- it can hit you from any level. It's like running through the tunnel of darts in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right, you're getting you've got to dodge those darts and you've got to figure out a way to get through there. And it happens time and time and time again. You know, I said to. Uh, I used to to have actors, I told you, I'd have actors who wouldn't do what they wanted to do. And that's, and I I, you have to say to yourself, okay, you need to get through this. How are you, you okay, psychologically, how are you gonna talk to them? How do you get them into this particular time? It's a funny story. I had the most laughs on the Harry Potter set, the most fun with Richard Harris. He was a devil, you know, he was just. Someday, if I see you, I'll tell you the Richard Harris stories because there's so many of them and they're so... They're part dark, evil, and hilariously funny. Uh, But he had a reputation for not, sometimes not knowing his lines. So we're shooting the final scene with Dan uh, where Dumbledore basically explains the whole movie. It's at the end of the movie. Dan's in a hospital bed. And Richard walks onto the set dressed as Dumbledore, and he's, you know, he's all he was always annoying Maggie Maggie (laughs) Maggie Smith by calling her Dame Maggie. Hello, Dame (laughs) Maggie. She hated that, so he said hello to Dame Maggie, and then he she was walking by, and then he gets onto the hospital set, and he goes, "What are we doing here?" And I said, "This is the scene we're shooting today." He goes, "Oh, I prepared a completely different scene," and I'm like. Uh, All right. Well, we have to shoot this because the other set's not even built. Oh, dear. So he sat down and it was like I had to feed him line by line by line. So I haven't watched the scene. I don't go back and watch my movies that much, but I haven't watched that scene in quite some time. It'd be interesting to see how it's cut, because I wonder if he gets through more than one or two lines and I have to cut the damn, I don't
2: know. It's not, I don't think it's any, anything anyone would ever notice but you. Like, you know the, the story. I don't think anyone else would. I don't think, anyone I don't think else I've ever know.
0: told anyone that story, by the way. It's a good one. I forgot about it. But that was an insurmountable day that we got through.
2: So being a creative problem solver, uh, I, I take notes on all these in my head. Being a creative problem solver, showing up and doing the work, somehow not internalizing the immense amounts of stress It just feels so ulcer inducing, you know, all of it somehow being able to, maybe that's the balance because of your family, because you're like, well, family is the most important thing. So, you know, this stuff is fun. It's important to me, but it doesn't mean the world. I don't know. To me, like having that much pressure just feels like, Oh God, I'm going to let people down. Oh fuck. Oh, I don't know. Oh shit. You know, just like constantly just eating Gaviscon to not have, you know, like reflux, just eating through your esophagus.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel that way about my family also. I mean, it's the same thing. I worry intensely about every move my children make, which again is ridiculous. It it just comes back to the Catholic guilt thing. So I think it's a matter of, um, you know, I run six miles a day, so I think that helps. I, I feel psychotic, before I make, uh, before I do that run. And then after that, I can handle almost anything. And on the, on a film set, I, I have a special, like, trailer made. It's not like a Will Smith size trailer. It's literally a small trailer with a treadmill in it. So I can go there at lunch and get, get sane. So that's, that. that, I have to say, that's the one thing that keeps me going. I don't know. Lastly, because you
2: even hearing your story, I'd be like, "Oh, when I was a kid, Paul Newman said to me." I mean, that's an insane sentence right there. Is an insane sentence, right? You know, uh, just in terms of like, "Holy shit!" I mean, that's the impact that that would have. And then also realizing, like, "Oh yeah, you you were like 22 or 23 when you wrote Gremlins." Jesus Christ, you know. But is there is there any one bit of advice through all of these amazing people that you work with and amazing experiences? that really stuck out to you that you received something that sort of felt like where you could feel your, the scope of your reality kind of shift and go, Oh my God, that, that that advice just changed my life. Is there anyone who was it, and What was
0: it? Um, The piece of advice that, I mean, because it's extremely difficult to look back and find one piece of advice that changed your life. It's always the negative that changes your life, not the, No one ever said anything to me about, oh, well, if you do this, this will happen, or that suddenly a light went off in my head. It's always negativity or or something going wrong that changes your life, you know? Um, So that's kind of where I go, you know? And that happens, as I said before, uh, that can happen in life. That can happen on a movie set. That can happen when you're driving to the... Grocery store. You don't, you, you know, you don't know. So there was never a piece of film advice I got. I wish, I wish I had. Uh, I had consumed a lot of every film book that was written at the time. Uh, you know, when I was at, at NYU, every piece of advice I could garner from those books were important to me. Um, I guess the most important thing would be, and it's a quite simple thing. My my film teacher at NYU was a guy named Hag Minujan. And Haig Minujin taught Brian De Palma, and most importantly, he taught. He was Martin Scorsese's film professor. Oh wow! If you look at the end of Raging Bull, it's dedicated to Haig Minujin. The 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 last sort of crawl at the movie, and so I had Haig my senior year, my j- sophomore, junior, and senior year, and he he took a real liking to me and was very you know a very important part of my life. And he said, making a film is like cracking an egg. If you think about it too much, you'll fuck it up. That was a pretty good piece of advice. <laughs> 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 <So>.
2: <laughs> I mean, it is great. It's so easy to overthink, you know, especially in something that's so detail oriented, but, uh, but that's fantastic. I mean, I really enjoyed chatting with you for the past hour and change Well, that
0: was great man oh what,
2: dude. Did you, what is your wife shooting by the way she's shooting a movie uh called slayers it's uh, her and malin ackerman and um and a couple others it's a vampire movie okay um, and uh it's super fun she's a horror fanatic and really just wants to do oh there she goes um just loves doing horror, has seen, like, knows more about horror films than I do. She's the one that owns all of our horror movie props. Um, oh, That's and, yeah. And so we, uh, and has also been a great kind of resource because we'll wake up in the morning and she'll go, Okay, I got an idea for you. It's a uh, parent trap, but horror. <laughs> you know, so like, she's just like, she just throws out these fun, we just kind of spitball
0: horror ideas all the time. But yeah. That's great. Is it, didn't, Jason just do, isn't freaky kind of freaky Friday? Yeah. Freaky. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was just,
2: yeah, I was, I just, I was just talking to Ryan Turk the other day. Who's like his like right-hand guy. And Ryan, we was talking about the pitch for that and he goes, yeah, it was just, you know, this, this person came to us and was like freaky Friday, but with uh, Jason Voorhees and a teenager. And he was like, Holy shit. You know, it's one of those great ideas. And it's one of those ideas that you're like, fuck, it was right there. You know, like it's, those are always the best ideas. You're like, it was fun. It was right there, you know? So thank right, you so man. much, man. Take care. Have a good weekend.
0: You too, Chris. Thanks. That was great. Okay.
2: Bye. Bye.
1: ID 10T scanning Complete. Enjoy your burrito.